John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, let me read these 11 verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, or water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. One of the most unfortunate caricatures uh, of Jesus is that he was a bit stuffy, that he was a bit of a stick in the mud, and that he didn't like fun and didn't like celebration. This happens quite a bit in our time. It happens quite a bit when we, as uh, people, talk to those who do not believe, who spend time uh, thinking about uh, Jesus in a way that he is not presented in Scripture. The way that he, that sometimes skeptics and secularists think about Christianity is that it's a bunch of fun-hating, and that Christians need to lighten up and learn to let loose a little. But Jesus cares about celebration. He genuinely cares about celebration. He cares about, and cares quite a bit about them. Last week in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, we saw a passage where Jesus attends and he interrupts a a funeral. And he has compassion on the widow uh, who who has lost her son in that passage. And he, by the end of that passage, has resuscitated the deceased young man. And Jesus cares. One of the things we learn there is that Jesus cares deeply for us in the midst of our suffering, and deeply for us in the midst of our sorrow. But now, here in John's gospel, Jesus attends a wedding. And at the funeral, there is mourning. But at a wedding, there is celebration. And we learn in scripture, we learn in the gospels, that Jesus cares about both of these things, and he cares about both of them deeply. Weddings in Jesus' time and culture looked very different than a wedding we've been to, likely. Weddings would often last for up to a whole week, where people would continue celebrating the couple and their, and their covenanting together. Ours usually last 20 to 40 minutes. And then we have a reception and there's some celebration, but the reality is that that doesn't take up much more than about half of your day uh, at most. And like the funeral in Nain, the wedding in Cana in Galilee here 
everyone in the town would have been invited. Everyone typically knew each other, and so everyone from the community would be present if they could be present at the wedding. Now, Jesus wasn't from Cana. Uh, He was from a Galilean town called Nazareth. His mom wasn't from Cana either. And his disciples who accompany him aren't from Cana either. So they probably got an invite because somehow they were related to the family. They were somehow related to the betrothed couple. uh, And so they received an invite and were explicitly told that they were invited to the wedding. Unlike the funeral that Jesus crashed last week. And a wedding was near the pinnacle of a celebratory event in Jewish culture. So we are, we are to see, as we read these 11 verses, we are to see that Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry in John's gospel at the peak of celebration in the culture that he is part of. And so we can see that Jesus cares deeply about celebration. Christians aren't to be a bit stuffy. We're to go all out in celebration because we have more to celebrate than anyone else. And Jesus is indicating in this passage what we have to celebrate. That we have many things to celebrate because of who he is and what he came to do. A wedding may be the pinnacle or the close to the pinnacle of celebration in Jewish culture. And in our culture, the pinnacle or close to the pinnacle of celebration for us is Christmas. We celebrate Christmas uh, in a way uh, that would indicate it is one of the most important things for us in our culture. We are told that Christmas is a time of joy, and of good cheer, time to spend Time with family and friends, close ones, loving one another, giving good gifts, being together as much as we are able to be together. The Messiah has come. That is why we celebrate Christmas. We have been delivered from all that stood between us and everlasting life with God who is Father, Son, and Spirit perfectly existing in fellowship from eternity past, now Father, Son, and Spirit, through the incarnation, through Jesus coming into the world and taking on the flesh, now welcomes us into that fellowship. We are welcomed into the fellowship that has eternally existed between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what the Messiah, this is what Jesus Christ came to do. So there are two things this morning that I want you to understand and for us to consider in these 11 verses in John chapter 2. The first is simply threats to our celebration, and secondly is the reason for our celebration. So again, first, threats to celebration. In verses 1 and 2 of this passage, Um, we learn that Jesus' disciples, Mary, were at this wedding going on in Cana. And that sets the stage. But when we get to verse 3, look at verse 3. We learn about a problem. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This is the problem. Now, we can 
think we can put ourselves in the shoes, although we don't celebrate weddings for an entire week, we can put ourselves in the shoes of the guests at this wedding and think about the reality of what it would look like if about two-thirds of the, the, the people present at the wedding reception have received their food, and then the caterer comes to the couple and whispers in their ears, we're out of food. The remaining third of the people won't get anything unless we run to the grocery store quick, and it'll probably just be some grapes and cheese. The, the, we can put ourselves in this, in this position. And what would happen in that position is that we as guests would, would, uh, it would, it would threaten the reputation of the couple. The two people who invited you here to witness their marri- marriage, you, you were told that there would be a meal, but they ran out of food and now have to grab something on the way home at McDonald's. Even if it wasn't the caterer's fault, or even if it was the caterer's fault, you would not remember the caterer. You would remember so-and-so's wedding where you didn't get anything to eat. It would reflect poorly, and it could be harmful to the reputation of the couple and their, their families in this instance. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, knows that it would, being their relatives, would likely have reflected poorly on the family. And she knows that Jesus could, in fact, do something about this. That he could make what had gone wrong in the lack of, lack of planning, he could make it right. And the problem here, we see the problem right at the beginning of verse 3. The wine ran out. It could be harmful to the reputation of the couple when the wine runs out. The wedding is still going, but there is no more wine. I think this leads us to ask ask the question, there is a problem presented in this passage, and we have to ask the question of ourselves, what threatens our celebration, especially at Christmas? What threatens our celebration at Christmas? What problems stand in our way from truly celebrating Jesus at Christmas? I want to give you three things, and obviously there are many, many more things that could threaten our celebration. But the reality is that this passage gives us some of, those, some of those ideas. The first might just be poor planning. Poor planning threatens our celebration. We're people who are typically pretty maxed out, especially this time of year. We come to Christmas, and we're running from one thing to the next, and all of a sudden, today, it's Christmas Eve. And, and we're wondering how it got here so quickly. And when that happens, sometimes we miss details, and that causes us to fret. And when we are fretting, celebrating seems like the furthest thing from our minds. In the Old Testament, God gives his people a command to expressly set aside funds and food throughout the year for the purpose of planning for feasts and celebration. God expressly commands us to do these things. The Hebrews were to set aside money so that they could afford to celebrate God's prescribed feasts in the Old Old Testament. And that should be taken to mean that we should be planning out our own celebrations throughout the year. We should be thinking about saving money throughout the year to give nice and thoughtful gifts to ones that we love. We should marinate the prime rib. We should anticipate a Christmas Day celebration by planning gifts, food, planning time 
together. Sometimes the turkey gets a bit dry and we give a tacky gift or someone gets sick. That happens. In those moments, we must remember, though, that our celebration isn't the food and the drink and the gifts, but the food and the drink and the gifts are designed to be aids to our celebration. And we should employ, the Bible is clear, we should employ these means of celebration. In this instance, wine was the aid in the celebration of the, of the, the, in the, the guests at the wedding. They employed this aid. Our celebration is enhanced when we plan out the way we will celebrate in advance. Another threat to our celebration might be lack of rest. Lack of rest. Again, we're pretty maxed out when we get to this time of year. We just see that year between Christmas and New Year's as a time where we genuinely get to sit down maybe for the first time in 12 months. And what Christmas sometimes amounts to us is just a break for us. If you're in school, we call the time between, between the last Friday or Thursday before Christmas until the time right after New Year's, we call it Christmas break. That's what we call it. We get a few days off work. We get a few days off of school. But I want to propose a a different line of thinking. Christmas, along with Easter, is at the height of the celebration for Christians. At Christmas time, we celebrate the Messiah coming into the world, taking on flesh, dwelling among us, living a life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserve in our place, so that we might spend eternity with God. That is the hope of the Christmas season. That if God did not come to earth, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, come to earth and take on human flesh, that there would be no way for us to get back to God. That is the truth of Christmas. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas. And so it should actually be a celebration. So if we go limping into Christmas, hoping to spend the day in a food coma on the couch, we may have missed the point. We may have missed the point. We actually want to go into Christmas well-rested so that it can be a day of celebrating Jesus, so that it can be a day of celebrating what God has done for us. You may not feel joyful and energetic, but go to your heavenly Father and ask for joy and energy for tomorrow and for the rest of the day today. Go joyfully and energetically into tomorrow, enjoying friends and family. The fact of the matter is you may be limping into this weekend, feeling pretty worn out, pretty maxed out. And again, I would suggest maybe a rethinking of the way that we approach Christmas. Of course, Christmas isn't a time for idleness. Celebration isn't idleness. But we're tempted to think That it is just a day to unplug if we overextend ourselves in the month leading up to it. Our celebration is amplified when we come into Christmas well-rested. The last thing that I'll mention as a threat to our celebration is self-indulgence and instant gratification. I would say that this is likely the biggest threat to our celebration in our culture. 
You may, you probably, I, I know that I have several, people who are on our Christmas list that we want to buy things for and who we want to give a thoughtful gift to. But they're really difficult to buy for because every time they tell you that they want something, they simply go out and buy it for themselves. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the one who's really hard to buy gifts for because just every time you have a desire, you just go get the thing. We rarely, if ever, as people in our culture, delay gratification for ourselves. If we want a good meal, we go to a restaurant and get it. If we want a new pair of pants, we go when we buy one. And in a world where we can get pretty much anything that we want whenever we want it at all varying levels of quality and in varying level and in varying quantities, we usually just go for it. But what that means is that there is sometimes nothing special about our Christmas meal. And our gifts are usually less exciting than something that we just bought for ourselves a few weeks earlier. And the fact is that there are a lot of other things here that might threaten our celebration. But for us to consider the fact that sometimes delaying gratification and not indulging simple whims may enhance and benefit our celebration at Christmas time. It may be a great way to love someone for them to be able to buy something for you that you could have easily bought yourself. Again, there are other ways that our Christmas celebration might be threatened. But self-indulgence and instant gratification are things that, that, again, come at us pretty hot and heavy in our culture. And for us, we need to think about the reality that Christmas represents the one time that Jesus came into the world. Now, he will come again. But the one time that he came into the world, we sang it earlier in the fullness of time. That was a one-time gift. Come to the world and the greatest thing that could have ever been given to us. Other things that threaten our, our celebration might just be internal thoughts and attitudes. Bitterness, entitlement, skepticism, frustration, isolation. Whatever it is, whatever threatens our celebration, though, Jesus provides the solution. The threat to the celebration given in this passage in John chapter 2, it is Jesus who comes with the solution. Mary knew it. She came to Jesus. She told him about the problem. She came to him with faith, understanding that he could in fact correct the problem. Whatever it is, Whatever threatens our celebration, it is Jesus and only Jesus that provides the solution. If your lack of planning brings you to a position that threatens your celebration, Jesus know that Jesus can take water and turn it into wine. He can take a pack of saltines and a stocking full of stale candy and turn it into the greatest Christmas you've ever had. If you lack rest, and that threatens your celebration. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
If self-indulgence and instant gratification threaten your celebration, Jesus can show you what you thought was best for you is actually nothing compared to what He has for you. He keeps the good wine for His timing. Friends, if you're in a position where you think that tomorrow might be a terrible day for you and the rest of the day might be a terrible day for you, the answer is not to try and run to Hugo's quick and try to grab a bunch of stuff and throw it in the basket and see what you can pull together. The answer is to come to Christ, to trust in Christ, to recognize that even in a position where, his, his, where, where, uh, where the celebration was threatened, he turns water into wine. He can redeem even the simplest of celebrations. Jesus cares about these simple celebrations of life. Like a wedding day, like your Christmas day in Jamestown, North Dakota in 2023, he cares about you and your intimate moments of life. And because these celebrations are designed to point us forward to a much larger celebration, when you eat your Christmas Eve meal after the Christmas Eve service tonight, when you eat breakfast tomorrow and Christmas lunch tomorrow, remember. Remember that these are designed to point us ahead to the time where we will eat all around the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that will commence at Jesus' second coming, where we will see clearly that one, the thing that once threatened us now has been dealt with fully and finally. Sin and death have been dealt with fully and finally, and all of our current celebrations will pale in comparison to that celebration on the final day. And that brings us then to the second idea this morning, which we've already alluded to, but we see here then the reason for celebration. Look again at the text and see what Jesus, how Jesus responds to his mom. She says, they have no wine. And then Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that's an odd response. Um, don't get hung up on him calling his mom woman. That might be offensive in our culture, but that's like saying ma'am for him. It wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't disrespecting his mother. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? What Jesus is saying here is that this event isn't his. It's not about him. What does this have to do with me? Jesus knew, Jesus' mom knew that Jesus could do something about this. That she, he could, he, she didn't know what, but he, she knew that he could do something about this. But, but Jesus' earth, earthly and public ministry had not yet begun. This is the first time he did anything of the sorts. And this sign that Jesus performed was the first that John, the gospel writer, records in his gospel. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And what Jesus is saying is that he isn't going to perform a sign just so the people who were getting married could save face when they messed up calculating how much wine was needed. That's not what Jesus does here. That is not what Jesus does here. We can't miss the fact that, that the turning water into wine wasn't just to keep the celebration going. Jesus, though, has a different plan, and we see the different plan in verse 11. John says, 
This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And here's the important phrase that's contained in that verse. And manifested his glory. And manifested his glory. He put his glory on display by turning water into wine at this simple wedding celebration in Cana in Galilee. That's what Jesus is doing. He says, this is not my thing. That's what he tells his mom. But he's going to make it his thing because he's going to say something very specific about who he is. He did this sign then to manifest his glory. He did this sign to declare to everyone who was present, declare to his disciples that the Messiah had arrived. That he was the one that they had been waiting for. That the fullness of time was now upon them. That he was born of a virgin. That he came into the world to live perfectly according to God's law. To die a substitutionary death for the sins of the world in order that all who come to him by faith might spend eternity with God the Father. This is what Jesus is doing here. And he was... The Messiah and the wine is better than the wine that was served previously because the wine had to be better than the previous wine because this wine was communicating that the Messiah had arrived. At an ordinary celebration, at an ordinary event, Jesus brought about an extraordinary thing that would give eternal cause to celebrate. The celebration wouldn't, wouldn't end when this, when this event was done. The celebration from this moment was inaugurated from now until eternity. That's what Jesus is doing. Saying everything that you need, everything that you, uh, everything that is necessary for you to have in order to spend eternity with God is found in me. That's what he's doing. And it was by his will that six stone water jars filled with water turned into wine. And by turning the water to wine... Jesus was bringing about events that only the Messiah could bring about. Those events are described in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 25, verses 6 through 8, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This, in fact, is what Jesus is saying he's doing right now. He is setting the table for the feast and the celebration that will exist forever. He will swallow up death forever. Through his death on the cross, he will swallow up death forever. The veil that covers everything and everyone. He will swallow up on the mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. No one escapes death. And Jesus will swallow that thing up. And he will not only swallow it up, but welcome all those who come to him by faith to feast and celebrate the destruction of the thing that sought to destroy us. By turning water into wine, Jesus was revealing that he had come to deliver his people from sin and death. And we see that out 
played out as the gospel accounts progress. So in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, as Jesus progresses through these, through these gospels, we see that at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples that his blood is the wine. And it is given to them for the forgiveness of their sins. He holds the good wine. And in the, and in the proper timing, he gives the good wine. He brings the better wine. And at the cross, that blood was shed and that good wine was, was given. This is the culminating event. The cross is the culminating event of Jesus' mission. When Jesus went to the cross and His blood was spilled, it was spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to restore His people to right standing with God, to welcome them around His table, and He does so by dying in our place. And the good wine that Jesus kept for us is His blood. Shed so that our sins might be paid for, so that all who come to Him by faith might have abundant and eternal life. This event is pointing forward to the cross. Jesus keeps the good wine. He keeps the good wine until His mission comes to a conclusion, and He gives, He offers, as the Messiah, forgiveness of sins in Himself. Therefore, Jesus is the reason for celebration. That leads us to a conclusion this morning and a couple of things to consider as we go from here and continue celebrating as people. The first concluding point is this. The trappings of Christmas are designed to aid in our celebration of Jesus. So everything that I just said, Jesus being the reason for our celebration, the reality that he came to earth as the Messiah, uh, taking on flesh, dwelling among us, the reality is that we are doing things over the course of the next 24 to 48 hours that are designed to aid in celebrating that reality. That's what we're doing at Christmas. You may have a wonderful day planned tomorrow, or you may not be sure what the day will look like. Maybe you're walking into a situation with family that you feel like could go nuclear, and you're feeling a bit anxious and overwhelmed right now. If the food isn't perfect, if the gifts aren't that thoughtful, if the visitors are offensive, remember that Jesus turned water into wine, that he kept the good wine, that he spilled his blood for the forgiveness of sins. It's not about the wine. It's about what verse 11 says. It's about manifesting His glory. It's about revealing His glory. The wine was aid in celebrating that the Messiah had arrived. What you are doing in playing games with family members, seeing your family members, eating good food with them, spending time together, these are gifts that are given to aid in celebrating that the Messiah has arrived. If Christmas is a stocking full of stale candy, remember that Jesus came to bring you around a table full of better food than you could ever imagine and be grateful. We are to use aids in our celebration. 
We are to give gifts. We are to eat good food. We are to drink good drink. And we are to spend time joyfully together as families. But the giver should never be outshined by the, or be outshined by the gifts. The giver should always outshine the gifts. The bread of life should outshine the meal tomorrow. The living water should satisfy more than anything tomorrow offers. Because everything that you're doing tomorrow is pointing ahead, is pointing forward to something better that you couldn't possibly, we can't even get our heads around it yet. The trappings of Christmas are designed to aid in our celebration of Jesus. Second concluding point this morning. Jesus is to saturate our celebration. If Christmas represents a time of uncertainty for you, as I know it does for many of you in this room, it represents a time of uncertainty, Jesus can still saturate your celebration. Now that sounds a little odd, but track with me. Don't overthink it. It's actually far more simple. What we need to do as people, when we're uncertain about what our celebration might look like, or uncertain about what the family dynamic is going to be tomorrow, uncertain about what our mood is going to be, or what our emotions might do to us in the moment, we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer and ask, us, ask Him to give us the mind of Christ, to delight in the obedience that Jesus purchased for us, to have a heart of gratitude when eating and giving gifts, praising God for the sights and the sounds and the smells. Pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the Holy Spirit for your meal. In humility, serve one another. Joyfully and generously give gifts and time to one another and use the trappings to look forward to the feast that will take place at Jesus' second coming. This is how Jesus saturates our celebration. By saturating our thoughts, our attitudes, our interactions, and our actions. Again, you may be walking into a situation that is wonderful. You may be walking into a situation that you have no idea what's coming. Jesus can saturate your attitudes related to this situation, joyfully obeying in the obedience that Jesus has purchased for you. Jesus is to saturate our celebration. Finally, Jesus keeps the good wine until he shows up. What Jesus wants for us to see in this passage is that he is, he is the greatest good that we can have. He is the greatest good that we can have. For us to come to him by faith, we must recognize and understand that we have received him. He gives us genuine reason to celebrate. He welcomes us into perfect fellowship with the Father. He welcomes us into, into celebration as those who have been redeemed. And so even if everything goes wrong in your celebration you can still joyfully remember that Jesus doesn't fail, that the celebration that Jesus brings about can't be touched, that it can't be tampered with, 
that it can't be destroyed, but it is given to you and is given to you in a way that recognizes that, that we can, in fact, celebrate. When someone we love or is important comes for dinner, we make our best meal. We clean the house thoroughly. We make our home a warm and welcoming place. We do that for our guest. But when Jesus shows up, there's a reversal. He brings the best with him. He brings the best with him. We can put on everything and say, look, Jesus, look what I did for you. But the reality is that it pales in comparison to what he brings to you. And if everything goes wrong and everything goes awry, Jesus still brings you the best. He's not waiting for you to overcook the the turkey and to say, come on now. He brings the best. The wise men brought Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these were kingly gifts. But all the riches that these men brought and all the riches that are contained in every part of the world were nothing compared to what Jesus brought them. Friends, when Jesus came to earth and took on flesh, He brought all the good things with Him. All the riches of heaven, the whole treasury came down. Abundant life is ours in Him. He brought all the good things because they were all contained with Him in Himself. Friends, there is simply nothing left to bring. Jesus here keeps the good wine until now. Simply come and celebrate. And Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world to die. That his blood might be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That we might celebrate knowing that we look forward to a day where we will feast forever. Where all the good things that you have given to us will be fully realized. And certainly in this room, there is a lot of uncertainty about the next 24 to 48 hours and their celebrations and what they might look like. Many of us have planned well, but there are too many intangibles. There are too many things that can threaten to disrupt our celebration. God, even in these moments, would Jesus saturate our celebration? Would he give us attitudes? and thoughts that would be commensurate with the mind of Christ? Would you give us great hope even as we sing now and celebrate for the remainder of the day? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.